right, if you guys can make your way to your seats, we'll get started here. As was announced, my name is John, and I have been on sabbatical for six months. Somebody asked me, how do you feel coming back? And um, mixed feelings, actually. Like, not working for six months is really cool. I recommend that to all of you. So you might want to go in and talk to your boss on Monday and just say, hey, I'd like to get paid and not work for six months. So I, I thought about wearing all black today and next Sunday and the following Sunday and just see how quick everyone caught on to being in mourning. I have to work now. But I, I really am thankful. Uh, I do want to give a shout out to my wife and, and here's why. So she's worked full-time during this whole episode, and she tore a meniscus in her knee. So she's playing in pain, right? So you got to picture this in your mind. Jana gets up. She's about to walk out the door. She's limping, and I'm like, hey, work hard. I'm, uh, I'm going to take a nap. Uh, you know, it's just... Anyway, I'm uh, really grateful to you, Jana, and really grateful to you guys, H2O Church, for giving me this time off. In fact, uh, can we... Can I just pause and give thanks to God for this sabbatical and what it's done in my heart? Let's pray. God, I am so grateful to you. I'm reminded of the song that says, my heart is an open space for you to come and have your way. That's my deepest desire. Lord, that you would just have your way with me, and I thank you for the ways you've tinkered with my heart. Thank you for the ways you've just pulled on my heart strings and moved, moved it and shaped it and healed it. And so I'm just grateful to you uh, here this morning for what you've done. We bring all of our hearts to you this morning. We thank you that you're bigger than any of us can dream. And we bring our hearts to you, whether they're bruised and bloodied or stagnated or on fire. And we ask you to speak to us here this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, this morning, I, I know Jim asked this question, but I just need to ask it again. We have notes in the app. How many of you use the notes from the app? Just raise your hand. All right, better than I thought. We will continue. Okay. <laughs> um, we are beginning a new series here today called Deepen, and you might wonder, well, what's the real goal? What's the real motive with this title? Uh, today's my first day of work, and I picked a title that you can hang anything on. You know, I can teach on anything over this next month, so the, the title really has no meaning whatsoever. I, I hope we all get deepened somehow in our faith journey. So here I, I want to begin with a reading from Scripture, so Jesse, come on out here. And I want to ask you guys to all stand. We believe that the Scripture is the Word of God, and we want to stand now in reverence for the Scripture. Isaiah 48, 14, 15. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. All right, you guys can have a seat. Uh, today I want to talk about the feminine imagery of God. Now, some of you, I know, are thinking, yes, this is so exciting. Others might be like, wow, what church am I in here? 
uh, I want to say I'm a very biblically conservative dude. And it's been remarkable how God has used the imagery in Scripture, the feminine imagery in Scripture, to shape my heart over this sabbatical time. We will be richer with a more holistic view of God. This topic, though, is is like walking through a theological minefield. There are, are people, out of their desire to be validated in their gender, which makes perfect, perfect sense, who have wandered off of the highway, crashed through the boundary, and down a cliff. People that once loved Jesus, who this, they've taken a turn as they've thought about this topic. And so I want to be very clear with you all on this thorny, difficult topic so that we can journey uh, together on it. Uh, first of all, let's just talk theology here. Every person here is a theologian, right? You're all theologians. If you've ever thought about God, you're a theologian. Even if you're not a Christian yet, if you've ever hung out at a bar with your friends and you've had a conversation, I wonder if there's a God, you're a theologian. We are all theologians. It's been written into our, who we are. We can't help but think and wonder, is there a God and what is he like? And so as we do theology, there's really good ways of doing theology and there's really bad ways. Theologians like to categorize things and create little subsets of theology. So these are some of the subsets of, of biblical or systematic theology. The first is called theology proper, which I think is kind of weird. It's like, what are you saying about the rest of this? Right? I mean, is this improper? Theology proper, just to give you a little clue what that is, there's a, a subtitle for that, which is paterology. And anyone, this is the study of what? Pater, God the Father. Okay, that was hard. It gets easier from here. Theology proper is the study of God the Father, Pater. So Christology is the study of Christ. Okay, so we have the Father, we have the Son. What's coming next? Pneumatology, which is breath, is the study of the Holy Spirit. We have ecclesiology, which is the study of the church. We have eschatology, uh, soteriology, which is the study of salvation. And eschatology, of course, is the study of snails. Um, <laughs> My wife says that every time I, I use the term eschatology, and I, I laugh every single time. It's, it never gets old for me. So as we think about these different categories, when theologians do the work of theology, what they try to arrive at is theological propositions. And, and I, I want to give you an example of what I mean here. So Psalm 119 Verse 68 says, you are good and do good, teach me your statutes. So as we think through this and we say, what is this actually saying? We're saying, number one, a theological statement would be that God in his essence, in his nature, in who he is, always does what is good or is, he is in his motive, good. There's no dark side there. There's no evil motive in the heart of God. And God does good. So under the umbrella of everything God does in this world and everything that we will discover in Scripture, everything that God ever does is good. So the work of theology is coming up with little doctrinal statements where we say God is good uh, all the time. Now, 
That's one way to study God. There's another way to study God, and that's to be affected by the imagery of Scripture, and that's what we're going to do today. And just as an example, it was imagery that drew me to salvation, that drew me to Christ. When I heard this, when I had this image here of Christ painted before my eyes by a former gang member from New York City, and as he communicated the gospel with a room filled of high school students for me at age 17, I was not persuaded and affected by a theological statement. I did not understand substitutionary atonement that Jesus died in my place. I did not understand justification that God would, from that point on, treat me just as if I had never sinned. What I understood by having this picture painted of me was of a God that enters into suffering and a God that loves us in a way that is incomprehensible. And as I thought about this image painted before my eyes, I knew I, I can never be the same again. So I just want us to sit in this just for a minute and realize that imagery is meant to affect us in a different way than theological propositions. Imagery is meant to evoke a visceral response. It's like God wants to speak to your gut. God wants to draw feelings out of you through a, a, a picture, an image. He wants to get past our minds, not because God is intellectual, but God wants to reach down into our heart and then play with that. Does that make sense, everyone? So the work we're going to do today is we're going to look at some images. As we talk about biblical images of God, we have king, we have judge, we have warrior, we have husband and father. King, God is king. He sits on the throne right now. He's also judge. We're all going to stand before him one, one day. He's also a warrior, one of my favorite images, and we will come back to this in just a few minutes. He's also husband. He wants to relate to us in a covenant relationship. And he's father. And if you've had a good father, you know that cry from your heart when we're worshiping. You are a good, good father. Now, I want you to think about these images and decide which one resonates with you most. Make that decision now. I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. Pick one image. Raise your hand if the image that you primarily relate to as you think about God is God as king. All right, good showing there. I raised my hand to that one for sure. What about God as judge? Okay, very few, and you're probably in counseling. <laughs> right? Don't mean to pick on you. It's like... That's a good image. It's a, it's a beautiful image, but you know, if, if you've been brought up in a church where you're God is judge, God is judge, it does something to you, right? We need that to be balanced by God as by God as Father. What about God as warrior? Ooh, love that. God enters into human existence and he fights not us, he fights for us. What about husband? Hmm, big nothing there. 
I, I love this image, even as a man, because it communicates that God is after my heart. He wants a, a real relationship. He wants to hear my voice. He wants to walk with me. And what about God as Father? Raise your hand. Okay, so that is the primary image that Jesus emphasized, God as Father. Here's a problem. Here's a problem with, it's not a problem with these male images. The problem is that these are all male images, right? And the scripture actually gives female imagery of God. And the problem is, especially for those of us, those of you, that are women, being able to find your identity in the God that says, you are made in my image. And the heart response of a woman would understandably be, show me that. And that's what I hope to share with you here today. All right, so there's three images here. We're going to look at the birthing mom. Uh, we're going to look at the nursing mom. And we're going to look at the weaning mom. Three images. So the first one is the birthing mom. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 42, and this is really more of a topical teaching, of course. We are going to be exegetical in the, in the sense that we're going to go verse by verse through small little sections, but we're not going to go as deep as I would normally like to go because I need to express the entire content of this big topic. So there are three questions, though. Whenever you be begin to study the Bible, I want you to have these questions. They are on your app. The question is this, who's the writer? Who's the writer? And what do we know about the writer? So in this case, it's Isaiah. Isaiah is a man who lived in a patriarchal time who felt very comfortable giving us a feminine image, which I will share with you in just a minute. So I picture a guy that's like, hey, I'm not following culture here. I'm going to shake things up. God gave me this image of how caring he is, and I'm going to share it with you. By the way... Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 refers to somebody who was sawn in half. Tradition tells us that King Manasseh found Isaiah in a log and ordered the log to be sawn in half, ending his life. That informs me a little bit about the writer. Second thing is, who's the audience? So the audience is the people of God, the people of Israel. As we'll see here in just a minute, they are feeling specific things, and we want to ask the scripture what they are feeling. The third thing is, what is the context? The context is that the people of God haven't been faithful to God, and hard times have fallen on them. And so as they look at their lives, they're wondering, God, where are you? I don't see this great story of this great God moving in my life. I feel something different than that. And so that's the writer and the audience and the context in which they experience this. So Isaiah chapter 42, verse 13. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal he cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foe. What image do we have? God as what? Warrior. It will help you to understand that this is God, this is Isaiah, beginning to speak to us about the Messiah coming to earth. 
man, this does something to me, guys. When I think of God arousing his zeal, it's like I'm coming to this earth and I'm going to save humanity. He is a warrior. I love that about God. Next verse. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I want you to imagine Jesus walking up the hill carrying his cross. Gasping, panting, languishing as he is about to birth a new world, a kingdom. And the scripture describes him, Isaiah describes God very specifically as a woman in labor. For those of you that have been an eyewitness to childbirth, we need to realize like today is not the way it was back then. So my wife is one example. We've had four kids, and three of those, she did not have an epidural. Uh, she may regret that. I don't know. But my wife, <laughs> you just gave her five. That's awesome. My wife, as she's giving birth, and I don't remember which child it was. Perhaps it was Caitlin. She was pushing so hard that the capillaries in her forehead all burst, just like Jesus experienced a medical condition called hermatidrosis when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, about to go to the cross, feeling the stress and the pain that all the capillaries in his forehead burst, and he bled drops of blood from his forehead as he prayed. Does that give you any kind of image, any kind of sense of the pain and the anguish involved in your rebirth. If you're a Christian today, Jesus took this illustration and he described becoming a follower as a birth. And how this informs me is it helps me to understand the reductionist language that we often use today when we describe salvation. What do people say? I accepted Christ. Do you see how reductionist that is? To the smells, the colors, the cry of anguish of a woman in labor with her capillaries bursting as she brings new life into this world from her body. This has helped me to understand, like, I guess the way I'd put it is with our, our first one, Caitlin. She didn't come into the world and then say, ah, I accept my birth. <laughs> she was born out of an act of love through suffering. And I just think that this is a powerful illustration. It helps me to look back at how God transformed my mind and my heart over a period of about, 
I'm not making this up by saying it was about nine months. It was about nine months that I was carried in the womb as I was hearing the good news taught to me by Christians until I came to the place where my heart and my mind would radically shift and I would surrender my life to God. So the first image is that of a birthing mom. Okay, second image is a nursing mom. Isaiah 49. I want to give you just a little bit of context here. So verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. Okay, let's just stop here for a minute. When you see a mountain singing or the, the world clapping their hands, this is a specific poetic technique. It's called anthropomorphism. Say that three times fast. It's taking a human feature and putting it on something that's non-human. And the writer, the poet, is doing it because he wants us to see this is huge. The universe itself, in anticipation of Jesus coming to earth, is breaking out in applause. The universe itself is applauding the greatness of what is about to happen. Verse 14, or no, 13, the end of 13. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. I, I just want you to think about this. From the perspective of God, I am doing a new thing, and it's awesome, and I'm comforting my people. This is great. And from the perspective of God's people, it's something entirely different. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, but Zion, or Jerusalem, or Israel, Zion has said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. I just want to ask us right here this morning, how many of you ever have felt that you're forgotten by God? That God is distant from you? That God isn't showing up in your life? And this juxtaposition here, of God saying, I'm doing something new, it's beautiful, and the people of God saying, I just feel forgotten, is meant to equip us on how to deal with the push and the pull of life. What is reality? And the reality is God has not forgotten us in any way, shape, or form. Verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Is it even possible for a nursing mom to forget her child? And it kind of is, and that's kind of implied, and it's been experienced by us, because there was a time when Jana was holding Caleb in her arms as a newborn, and in a moment of panic, she's like, where's Caleb, where's Caleb? It's like, um right there, <laughs> attached to you right now. So it is possible. It is possible. But God is implying that it's not possible for me to forget you. 
I, I want this imagery to just sink in. So I want you to look at these images of a mother with a child. Can you go back just a little slower? I'm sorry. Thank you. Just look at the tenderness here between the mother and the child. Look at the affection. Imagine her cooing over her child. Look at the nurture. Look at the expression of contentment on that mom's face as she holds the life that she brought into this world. Look at the sheer delight of a mother rejoicing over her child. Now, I know we live in a uh, very PC world, and uh, it, it's one where if you say anything about gender, you need to like, add all these disclaimers, right? That's our world now. We need to qualify every statement. So disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. There is a difference in my observation and experience in the parenting of a mother and a father. One of our children shared with us about a week ago that they were going through a difficult time. And the, the observational difference between Jana and myself was remarkable. I moved in trying to call out strength and power, admonishing as a dad. My wife just nurtured. And we kind of had this moment afterward and gave each other high fives like, we're a good team. That was fun. And to me, it was awesome to just sit back and, and to reflect on that and to realize that both are images of God in who he is and how he relates to us. You know, if you think about this, I don't know, uh, there of course could be exceptions, but there's a difference between a dad and a mom, typically when a child is like out there at night alone, who knows what is going on. And so for me, the conversation between Jana and myself goes something like this. Hey, uh, it's 9 o'clock. I'm going to go to bed. And Jana's like, our, our, our child is, is, is still out. How can, you, how can you go to bed? Pretty easily, actually. I'm just going to bed. I'm not... And with Jana, it's like, I, I, I can't sleep because my mind is thinking about that child, and that's godlike. Can we all, that's the point, isn't it, of the image? That's the point. And if you don't catch it yet, let's look at the next verse. Verse 16. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved. Can we say that word together? I have engraved you. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. He's describing a city, Jerusalem. I've engraved you. So those of you that have a tattoo, like that's an engraving. And God is saying right here, like I engraved you. I, I can't possibly, you are always on my mind. You're engraved into me. And that word you is significant it's not my name only. It's not my past. It's my name, my past, 
my weaknesses, my struggles, all that makes me me is engraved into the hand of God. If you'd like to, you can fast forward in time to the crucifixion and the scars of Jesus and say, that's exactly where I was engraved into this God that loves me. You know, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and so I, I kind of made a decision. You know, all my friends were non, non-churched, and so when I became a Christian, I looked around at the Christian world and thought, oh, some of you guys are kind of cheesy to me coming from my non-Christian background. And as I've journeyed along as a Christian, I've had that same observation. Sometimes Christians can be really cheesy. One of the cheesy things that I would never ever, I will never talk about the Footprints poem. Never going to do it. Okay, so just got to do it. For those of you though that don't know what this poem, I didn't include the poem, but it's a vision of a guy that is, is with God, and he looks on the sand of the beach, and there's these two sets of footprints, and then he notices that in the particularly dark moments of his life that there's only one set of footprints, and that really bothers him. That's what we experience. That's what we feel, right? It's like, God, where are you? I don't feel you right now. And the Lord turns to the person and says, my dear, precious child, It is in those moments that I carried you. Enough cheese. I want to talk just for a second on uh, on gender before we go to the third image here. Uh, It's important that we understand that as Jesus said in John chapter 4, God is spirit. God is spirit. So we have to do some careful and clear unpacking when we think about masculinity and femininity and gender. So here's the way John Piper put it. I can't really add to what he said. From eternity, God has not had a physical body, and therefore he doesn't have male features. Facial hair, musculature, male genitals, no Y chromosome, no male hormones. Male is a biological word and God is not a biological being. Does that make sense? And so when we think about this, and this helps me to just delineate this, when we talk about gender being male or female, we're talking about divine attributes of spirit, of God, divine attributes that have been placed in flesh. So masculinity is a God thing. Femininity is a God thing. Maleness, femaleness is a God thing, God's attributes placed in a human body. To me, that helps me. So again, I want to repeat what I said earlier. There's a problem when we don't look at God as having these traits Because in the dark moments of our lives, it's really helpful to know that God is as intimate with us as a nursing mom is. That God's delight in us is far greater than a mom could ever have for her child. Third image. Third image is that of a weaning mom. Weaning mom. Weaning, of course is a mom 
walking a child through a process of transitioning from breast milk to solid food as part of a process of growing that child up. So I want you to look at 1 Peter 2, verse 2. Like newborn, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. So when I became spiritually reborn, I was like a little baby and I hope this does not sound in any way disrespectful. I'm trying to be consistent with what Scripture teaches. God nursed me through the Scripture. God gave me a new identity, the six to eight inches that a newborn has vision for corresponds to the distance between a nursing mom and the mother's face. And God wants to build our identity through the scripture. As we encounter God through scripture, we grow in our faith. That's why I love the scripture so deeply. It speaks to me. It nurses me. It grows me up. Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Here's what David is saying here. You're God, I'm not. I don't know what you're doing in my life. There's things that I, I'm not getting, that I want, but you're God and I'm not. That's what's going on in that context. Next verse. But I have calmed I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. So I want you to just imagine God holding you. You having desires that are unfulfilled. You having things you want to have happen in your life. God, why are you not doing this? From the perspective of, of an infant, it makes no sense. I'm hungry. I want. And the God that is good says, I'm withholding from you. Because I love you. And intend to grow you up. This uh, imagery here is continued through the New Testament. Uh, Paul was man enough to describe himself as a woman. When he said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we don't have this in the PowerPoint, he's speaking to a, a church, and he said that I've been gentle with you like a nursing mother who cares for her own children. But do we see this in Jesus? We do. So before Jesus enters into Jerusalem to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world, I want you to understand that pretty much everybody believes God is almighty, right? All God people, all God believers throughout this world say God is almighty. That's common no matter what religion a person has. What is unique to Christianity is the self-sacrificing, vulnerable aspect of God that is revealed in Jesus. 
a God whose love is so great that people who are plotting his death, people who are thinking about how they can murder the Messiah, we have this maternal instinct come out of Jesus in his words and his heart. So Matthew chapter 23 O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Now, put yourself in the mind of the disciples. The disciples know that the religious leaders hate Jesus. They they may or may not have known that they were plotting his murder. But as they thought about these people that hated their Messiah, it would have been more likely for them to have a heart that says, smite them, almighty smiter. You know, something like that. Bring your wrath. Let lightning and thunderbolts fall. Let's go. Toast them. And instead, Jesus gives this illustration. And I just think of myself as a disciple saying, Really? A mother hen? Are you serious? You're a mother hen? You know that song we used to sing years ago, Our God is an Awesome God? Our God is an Awesome God. My king is a mighty king. My God is a judge. Well, my God is a mother hen. Do you, that's what he's saying here. The longing that he felt, even for those who would oppose him. Last verse. Matthew chapter 12, verse 20. This is not distinctly feminine imagery, but it wraps all of this together. Because of the Messiah, it was said that a bruised reed he will not break. I want you to just imagine a plant, and the plant is bruised. And he's referring to a human being. And he's saying... I'm so gentle that I know that life has beaten us up. I know that life has told us a a story. I know that we feel God is absent or we feel forgotten, but I will not break off even a bruised reed in my gentleness. A smoldering wick he will not quench. So let us follow the example of Jesus in our community with one another, knowing how easily we can be hurt, knowing how quickly we can think low thoughts of God. Let us follow the example of Jesus, both toward ourselves, our community, and those outside of faith. Would we have the gentleness, the maternal instinct that we've seen in Jesus and in God as we relate to one another. Here's the takeaways I want you to get out of this talk. First, we're invited to image God through the feminine imagery of Scripture alongside masculine imagery. We're not doing away with warrior king. We're adding the aspects that we've talked about here today. Secondly, Through this feminine imagery, we're invited to expand our view of the greatness of God and move out of despondency into trust. 
We are not making God softer. We're expanding our understanding of God by seeing the additional aspects of care and nurture and tenderness to a warrior God who sits on a throne. Third, to women, you're called to live out of an identity built on being nothing less than the image of God. I I hope that these images impact you specifically, that your femininity is God-made and God-like, and we should treat you as images of God. Number four, and lastly, we're all instructed to exude empathy, nurture, and gentleness toward one another. I want to invite the band onto the stage here and want to take just a minute and pray for us as a church. Why don't you guys go ahead and stand with me? Let's pray. God, I thank you for being the way you are. I think about the moments in my life, especially over this sabbatical over the last six months where I felt hopeless and I felt forgotten and how you've used scripture to lift my eyes to see a God that is bigger and more intimate and yet more vulnerable, inviting me to walk by faith. God, today as a community of faith, we want to stand in awe of you. We enter now into worship, into singing, into expressing back with our hearts our gratitude for all that makes up this limitless being that we call God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. You are greater in every dimension than we have imagined you, and we turn away from our small thoughts today to embrace a God that is bigger. We come now to worship in the mighty name of Jesus.